1: Ah, uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face. Love having these on. We're going to go almost all the way out west, at least where those mountains get real, real big. Look, I grew up in West Virginia. We got hills, they got mountains. Denver Post columnist uh, Krista Kafer, so glad you're joining us. Thank you so much for the time, ma'am.
2: It's great to be here.
1: This is going to be there. fun. Well, here, <laughs> there, over yonder, up yonder. Mom, mom's listening up yonder, up on top of our mountain. How you doing, mom? Uh, if the Facebook's working, you never can tell cause we don't have broadband in West Virginia yet. We'll talk about that some other time. Um, they just got, they just got off dial up like six years ago. It's crazy. There's no, I can't do this show when I go home cause I have to get, I can get a hotel room and get enough internet to do it. That's the only way I can do it. It's that That's crazy. Bad. It is crazy. It's an economic issue. We'll paint that out some other time. Um, you write at the Denver Post. I guess you just decided you had enough friends in the world and didn't want to be popular in the internet because you wrote a column, I can't believe I'm going to say this, Defending Virtue Signaling. <laughs> now, I, I I see some hot takes from time to time, but that's a new one. Krista uh, Kafer, Defend Your Peace.
2: <laughs> you know, we all do it, right? We all do virtue signaling. Everybody's at some point had a bumper sticker on the back of their car, maybe a, a sign in their yard. Even the things that we say and tweet, It's a way of signaling that we're in the group, that we agree with others. It's a way of telling people who are outside of the group that, hey, we're not like them, we're like these people. And I get that. It's fine. Where I draw the line is when legislators start using taxpayer money to virtue signal through their ordinances or laws. I'm thinking, you know what? Get a sign, buddy.
1: Yeah. And it's funny enough, I'm a nomenclature guy, so let's talk nomenclature, because part of the problem is with virtue signaling is it means whatever you want it to mean. Right. And different people use it differently. And the tone of voice I put it in, because I can say virtue signaling, I can say your virtue signaling, you know, it just changes it. Cambridge actually sat down and made a definition of this thing. They say it's an attempt to show other people that you are a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable. Key word here to them especially on social media. Now there's an urban dictionary one too, but we have to be FCC compliant for the radio. So we'll skip that one. Is that a good definition? Do you think working? Because I think the two key words there, I'm not big on grammar. My editors will tell you this. I'm terrible at it, but I think the to them and expressing that you are, is kind of the keys there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm expressing to other people. So let's put it this way. If, 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 I'm a big pro-lifer. Um, something I've been involved with for the better half of my life. Even when I was a Democrat, now I'm a Republican. I've been an independent, but I've always been pro-life. Now, if some crazy nutball out there were to shoot up a clinic, and it has happened, most of it in the deep past, but I would feel sort of like I had to say something on Twitter to say, "Look, I hate violence. All violence and murder is bad." Even though anyone who knows me knows that I am pro-life. I love all people. I'm against the death penalty, I'm against, basically against killing unless it's in self-defense. And yet I would feel like I'd have to virtue signal to say, look, I'm pro-life, but I hate this thing. Similarly, I, you know, people on the left, friends on the left of mine, they may have a sign in their yard that says science is real and love is love and all this stuff. They're signaling to other neighbors like them that, hey, they're open-minded, they're tolerant, they love women, they love immigrants, they think uh, gay marriage is a good thing. I don't begrudge them that if they want to do that, if that makes them feel good, you know, what? I can just look at the uh, the trees and the bushes. I don't have to look at their sign.
1: Has this is going to be a weird question, but I've been thinking a lot about this because um, oldest daughter got her first little house and she has very strong political viewpoints. And then, of course, the house right across the street has flags and yard flags and the yard signs and all kinds of paraphernalia for the opposite of her views. And mm-hmm. I'm like, welcome to being an adult kid. This is just what it is. Um, has merchandising really, really ruined political virtue signaling? Because now you can just get the shirt, or you can just get the hat, or you can get the bumper sticker, you can get the and I know this has really gotten ramped up the last few years because our you know Trumpian friends have really took it to another level. But let's be honest, at some point, you know, our progressive friends are going to figure out this a good slogan. They're gonna have good merchandising too. We've all seen it. Is merchandising really screwing up our viewpoint on this because we really can't spend money on it? And then where you spend your money, that's where your heart goes. The old saying goes, I don't think we can separate those two things in this particular instance, can we?
2: No, it's kind of gotten corporate. It's become sort of corporatized. I, I think about, what is it, the whole month of, I don't know if it's February or March, it's uh, Gay Pride Month. And yet, you know, you got Target and Walmart and all, I don't know about Walmart, but definitely Target and a whole bunch of different retailers putting out rainbow this and rainbow that and you know i'm from the 70s i liked it better when the rainbow was just the rainbow but now it's like there's all this merchandise that comes out and it's not even i mean how exactly is the rainbow and rainbow colored shoes or jewelry actually related to gay pride i don't know but it's definitely corporatized it and i guess you know people like to wear on their person or their car or their house things that signal about them and um i'm just thinking that hey every, everybody does it it is a little tacky at, at times especially if you don't actually mean what you say you mean um but I, i'm not going to begrudge somebody i i have a, an anti-zombie sticker in my car and i guess that's saying something about me
1: um, um hey i've seen whole vehicles that are zombie response vehicles taped all the way yeah. down not and painted on them but you know, I, I guess that's a very safe one since, you know, they're not willing really <laughs> to deal with it. It is that part of it too here. Cause look, I, I had, we had a guy down here on the corner across from the shopping center down here. He, he was selling flags and he was selling Trump flags and he was selling rainbow flags and he was selling one love flags. And he was, he sells all of them and he's like, well, I don't care. They all, they're all the same price, 20 bucks a flag, And that was his take on it. But that's not, the internet take when we move this into the social media realm and and my thing lately has always been you're a columnist which means you're an observer of humanity because that's what you got to be to be a columnist yes the thing about it i think we just need to add social media to money power and alcohol it just reveals whatever you already are and it takes the barrier down right that's what social media you know people think they're bulletproof when they smash sin when you start putting this part of it to it the virtually signaling stuff or worse, you get really offended at somebody else's virtue signaling that may or may not just be an innocent thing that they're just doing to feel good about themselves. This gets to be a toxic mix pretty quick, doesn't it? And it's not because social media is bad. It's because we're making it that way.
2: I think social media is whatever you want to make it out to be. So I on Twitter, my rule is this and my Twitter thing is at Krista Caver, my name pretty easy, is that if somebody is really rude to me, I mean, not just disagreeing, but just being nasty or hateful they automatically get muted and I don't respond to them. In the meanwhile, I only follow people that I respect. A lot of journalists, I, I follow you, I follow uh, people who have interesting opinions. I also follow a lot of scientists and a lot of bird photographers and people who photograph spiders because I, I like wildlife. I think it depends, you know, who, who you like, who you want, the communities you want to be part of, you can be on Twitter. So my Twitter experience is about 99% positive because I only correspond with people that I like. And I'm also a little contrarian in the sense that I send people compliments all the time. Like, you know, that looks good. Or I like your photo or cool spider or nice article. And I, I think you can be, a, I, it sounds like a bumper sticker, but you can be a force for good on Twitter.
1: Yeah. That's why we started doing the supper club thing with the food is mm-hmm. like, cause I don't have to check your handle and i don't have to check your bio Before I like your food picture, so just put a food picture on there, send it out. I don't have to go through your bio. I don't have to worry about you know that one's safe for me. And because a bunch of us, yeah, a bunch of us that started that, like we talk politics all day. I need a happy place on my Twitter feed somewhere. So let's throw food, and it blew up like it's way bigger than I thought. That's exactly why we did that because I don't have to check. I don't. I don't have to see what your political views are. Oh, that's a that's a good looking plate of ribs. That's a good looking bowl of ramen. I like it.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, and I like to uh, pickle and can stuff. I like to make jam. Um, I like to put those pictures up there. And I, I think there are people out there who are 100% all political all the time. I would say even as a columnist and somebody who who, who does some political stuff, I run for office and whatnot, but it's only about a 10th of who I am. I'm all about food, travel, animals. Um, I like meeting people. I like meeting people on the left or the right and hearing about their stories. I heard an interview uh, with you, um, and one of the things that I took away from that is that your family, uh, sometimes when your family gets together, you guys sing hymns. It's a very small thing, but I just thought it was so delightful. And then also that you like game meat, same as me. I think there's just a lot of cool people out there that I enjoy staying in touch with, even though I don't know them personally
1: almost deer season. I'm going to get my bag of jerky here in about, eh, about seven, eight weeks here. Can't wait. Um.
2: Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app.
1: When you're talking about virtue signaling, if you know who you are, it makes it a lot easier to get your points across because people want real like, you know, you're a columnist, you're a public figure. You've done, you know, congressional staffing. So you've done like statistical analysis. People want real. And what something that's happening online is folks are figuring out really quick who's real and who's not. But that's a two edged sword, because with this virtue signaling stuff is you can also reveal that you're not real in a really big hurry when you don't actually mean to. I don't know that that's really a fixable thing because that's an individual thing. That's a first amendment thing where that changes. And this is where you get into it in your pieces. That's you and me and Joe Schmo and, and, you know, buddy up cabin Creek and whoever talking about it. And, you know, the the crazy pothead and Parker can say whatever they want to say out in Colorado. Right. When the government starts doing it though, and a government official or an elected official or an unelected bureaucrat for that matter, and they start putting the power and force of government behind something like that, though, it changes into a very different thing though, doesn't it?
2: It certainly does. And I highlighted a couple of things in that piece where, uh, we first was, a, and I say this, I'm basically a right-leaning, uh, columnist at a very, at a left-leaning paper. Um, I'm kind of like the Ross Dutat and, the the George will only out here in the middle of flyover country. And I, I tend to poke, poke fun to both sides, because I think, you know, at any given point, someone is doing something stupid somewhere. And sometimes they're Republicans, sometimes they're Democrats, sometimes they're independent, a lot of, you know, (laughs) Green Party, Libertarian, whatever. And so I picked out a couple of different examples of lawmakers here in the vicinity, both on the left and the right, who did things that will not hold up in court. I believe they did them to virtue signal to show to their base, hey, I'm with you. And the first one was a conservative county commissioner decided that he was going to go after a Pride Fest event that is held on a on the, the fairgrounds of a basically a conservative leaning county. Now, I'm not into Pride Fest. I don't go to them. I don't care. But because there was a wardrobe malfunction in a fake boob on a male performing as a female was shown. This lawmaker is using that as pretext to make sure that Pride Fest can't come back to the the fairgrounds. And the same uh, the same commissioner he threatened to buy a big uh, park from an, an adjacent jurisdiction because that adjacent dur- jurisdiction had put in place a concealed carry ban um, in parks. So, but but the but the district can't even afford the property. So again, it's kind of threatening something that can't happen. And then we got a big left-leaning district out in Boulder that has decided there's no gun shows at county fairs. And that's not going to hold up in court because you can't allow other kinds of buying and selling opportunities and not allow lawful gun sales on the same fairgrounds. So I I draw the line here because these are all sort of virtue signaling. They're telling their base, look, we're anti-guns or we're anti-pride fest. Whereas I'm thinking, how about you just get a bumper sticker And then spare us and spare your staff the time it's going to take to put this in. And then to also try to hold it up in court because it's not going to hold up. So you're you're wasting taxpayer money.
1: And it's not just wasting taxpayer money. This is something I've tried really hard to do since I started doing public writing and then later that led to media. A lot of what we talk about is virtue signaling or even, you know, ideological things. You know, the real hot button culture war stuff is to kind of turn the noise down on it. And get into it and it's like, okay, is this really a problem or is this a vehicle somebody's using for power? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, if it's something really loud, like that gun show, like the pride events, like, you know, drag queen story hour on some state, you know, 2000 miles away, somebody going after a church during COVID, you can pick both sides are very bad at this, whatever you're going to pick almost without exception, if you dig and dig and dig enough, you end up coming to somebody who's basic, you know, when you really get down to it, they're just saying, I don't like this and I want the power to make it stop. That's not virtue signaling, that's abuse of power. Unless it's something criminal, in which case there's already a criminal code, or morally wrong, in which case you have some civil options to go to court and try to stop it and argue your case. It's always when you strip it down and you get rid of the buzzwords and you get rid of all the nonsense and you get rid of people's feels, to use the, the vernacular of the kids these days, it's really mostly going to be about somebody wanting power to make somebody else do something they don't really want to do, but they think they should be doing right.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Virtue signaling becomes power, of uh, power when lawmakers decide that they can foist their will on the rest of us. My thought is this, if you don't want to go to pr- uh, Pride Fest, don't go. Um, people all the people who witnessed that that uh, wardrobe malfunction were people who meant to be there. And, yeah, they did bring their family with them. That is their choice. They have a choice to be able to go, and they made that choice. I wouldn't make the same choice. And if you don't want to make that choice, don't make it. Same goes for gun shows. If you don't want to own a gun, if you don't want to go to a gun show, don't go. Uh, but don't begrudge a law-abiding person the opportunity to to buy a firearm. And here's the funny thing. Is that when you look at statistics, the people who commit crimes generally don't buy their firearms from gun shows. Uh this is gun shows are where law-abiding people go to buy firearms. And same, same goes with the concealed carry ban in, in Denver area parks. People who own who have a concealed carry permit are the least likely to commit crimes if you compare them to other people. So there there is a you know. Virtue signaling, everyone does it. But when you're doing it and enhancing your own power, and really discriminating against other people, in you know, Douglas County is saying that hey, if you want to have a festival of some kind, you can come to the the counter, the County Fairgrounds, unless you're gay and you're about gay pride, then you can't come. Um, Boulder County is saying, yeah, you can come here and have some kind of a big swap meet. You can sell, um, you know, rocks and gems, whatever you want to do. But if it's firearms, you can't sell it and you you just can't do those things. You cannot have viewpoint discrimination. You cannot use the power of government to force your viewpoint on other people.
1: Chris K for Denver Post columnist joining us. The other side of that is because you've been on the other side of it. You've worked, you know, on the political side of it as a staffer and other things. When you have competing, let's call them stunts, because like we said, if if you if you do something and, you know, it's not going to hold up in court, but it's going to be a year and a half or two years from now before it gets through court. And it'll be after an election looking at certain people right now, you know, that (laughs) that's a stunt. But then you have competing stunts because there's going to be a reaction from whatever person you stunted or the side you stunted. They're going to react to that with another stunt. But on a practical level, especially on the local and state level, that makes doing coherent, consistent policy that we need to have normal everyday lives to have economic freedom, to have political consistency for people to have an environment of freedom. It makes that almost impossible, doesn't it? Because now the lawmakers are going to spend all their time stunting instead of trying to figure out ways to work together and make the, I know Pollyannis to say, well, they've got to work together. Well, if they're fighting, they're not, you know, it's the old mob thing. If you're on the mattresses, you ain't making money. If you're fighting each other, you ain't legislating stuff. And there's no way to have consistent policy, good, bad, or indifferent, if that's all you're doing. And I see that part accelerating, and I see the legislative part falling by the wayside.
2: I think you're right. So I I was a congressional staffer in the late 90s, and then I worked for a big think tank in D.C., in the early 2000s, and what's interesting, I'm not saying there was no no political theater. I mean, political theater is is age old. But politicians making big speeches, saying insulting things, provoking people, uh, you know, doing different things it, it, that's just sort of stock and trade of, of political power. But there's definitely less of it. And what's interesting is that there's something there's 13 13 uh, spending bills we managed. I mean, I, I say we. I was a staffer for a congressman. And we managed to pass all of them. All, you know, we never did omnibus bills. We actually managed to pass all of those those bills. And people did work together a lot more. Yeah, there was you know there was tension, there was friction, and people disagreed. But I would say the proportion of theater to actually working on things, the working on things was more than the theater. It feels like, and I'd have to quantify it if I were to, you know, call up a congressman's office or a congresswoman's office and say. How many of your staff members are actually working on real legislation versus uh, being provocative and getting yourself on Fox News? I don't know what that ratio is exactly, but the way it feels to me is that it's more theater, less action.
1: I mean, you know, I remember the 90s. I'm old enough. Ninety eight was my first election. The midterms, that's the Clinton impeachment election. So, yeah, (laughs) there there was some mess going on. Trust me. Uh, I remember that time period well. But. It's in it's you mentioned it though. What changed in the '90s was the rise of network news as we now know it. We started getting the internet. We started having you know alternate media. Um, things like Rush Limbaugh was at his peak in the late '90s, early two thousands. The internet started changing it. Then it changed again in the mid two thousands with smartphones. It's changing it again now because you have even more technology. Virtue signaling is one of those things that seems to fit the new media environment really, really well. Because you can go to that way faster and it fits into you know the, the characters on Twitter and you can get it on a TikTok real fast. It almost feels like something like virtue signaling, which is already an ingrained part of human nature. You can call it other things throughout human history, but it's always been there. This media environment, it's almost like it's tailor-made for it. So observer of humanity that you are, what do you think is a more productive way for people to talk about it? Because calling out hypocrisy never works. If you take, you know, any kind of debate class ever, they'll just be like, you know, never address hypocrisy because you just end up in a circle. So calling out hypocrisy on virtue signaling is never going to work and we're all doing it. So that's not going to work either. What's a more productive way to have this conversation, do you think? You know, it's hard to virtue
2: signal face to face. You know, it's something you put on your one. your Twitter account, you put it on your car. But when you actually sit down and talk to people, people don't talk in slogans. They don't sort of um, push those things on each other. So I guess I would recommend more face-to-face conversations and also just having the discipline to say, I'm not gonna follow people who are provocative. I'm not going to respond to people who are provocative. I have basically a no response uh, rule for myself that if somebody is nasty to me, I just mute them. I'm just done. Um, because what they want to do is they want to provoke me and I'm supposed to provoke them and then they're supposed to provoke me again and it's sort of like a tit-for-tat you know provoking and virtue signaling I don't want to do any of that it's a total waste of time I'd rather waste my time on Wordle frankly (laughs) you know what I mean if I'm going to waste my time it should be on dog videos it should not be on uh, trading tit-for-tat for for some angry person so for the most part unless if somebody comes at me with a criticism of my column or something I've tweeted that is reasonable, of course I'll interact with them. But if they're gonna be nasty, then I, it's just automatic mute. And I, I think having both the discipline to be disciplined in our social media interactions, and then also just making the time to spend time with people. I, I have a lot of friends on the left, which surprises some folks, because I've been uh, you know, a person of the sort of center right for a long time. And we don't talk about politics most of the time. We talk about food and travel and you know stuff that we like animals basically if you like dogs i probably like you um i have you know very rarely we'll meet somebody who likes dogs or horses that is not a likable person but generally speaking if you like animals um i'm there i love food i'll feed anyone i'll eat anyone's food for the most part i i love travel i love to meet people from other countries it's it's that kind of face-to-face interaction that that takes us away from virtue signaling and maybe just being virtuous
1: yeah and my rule is but i started doing was um anything unless it's somebody i really know well i'll go along with them you know the third tweet is like a bar after midnight nothing good's going to happen after that third tweet usually Things like that. But one thing I've learned and I try to do on Twitter, and I try to keep a pretty positive timeline most of the time, every now and then I'll I'll get wound up about something. One of the most precious things you have is your time. You, you don't owe people that are bad faith actors your time. And if you just kind of get that through your head on, and Facebook's even worse than this, but I don't have Facebook because I, you know, I like my family and I want to keep loving them. So I don't have Facebook because those two things <laughs> wouldn't go together. But I do have Twitter and one of the things about twitter is is i just learned i was like okay i'm there's certain things where i feel like i owe it to people to respond Like, you know if i write something that i know is hot or you know if i if i'm on you know if i go on like young turks where i know i'm going to be getting mess because it's just built into the cake um things like that you know you and everything's in my real name so that keeps me accountable so there's there's that part of it but no you nobody has a right to just make me get angry over their little thing that doesn't affect me one little bit. And I really wonder, yeah. And I just, I'm like, you know, I got four daughters and four dogs and I just ain't got time for this mess. But the other part of it is, and, and the long winded way to get to it is it doesn't gain me a blessed thing to get upset on the internet. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. That's really the virtue signal is that you can get angry online and get seal claps from your in-group and it's easy. And that's just as much a virtue signal as the bumper sticker or the flag or the t-shirt or the hat or whatever the other case is. That's where this stuff gets dangerous is when you start put, you know, not to be a pop psychologist here, but when you're, when you're purposely getting the negative reinforcement out of your virtue signaling, I think that's way more dangerous than just wearing the t-shirt of your candidate, of choice or your cause of choice or a rainbow flag or a red Trump hat or whatever the case may be. Cause those aren't inherently negative. Although I know they can be sometimes that, that need for that negative online is the one that I just say, Nope, I'm not interacting with this anymore. It's it's there's no, there's no good in it at all.
2: I I have to watch myself from getting the sort of dopamine hit on likes. Like, you know if i post a picture of some wildlife photography i you know i find myself checking to see if anyone's liked it right or if i make a clever statement or post a column and i'm looking for likes and i, I just have to monitor myself to make sure that i'm not using that as my so its main source of dopamine it needs to be the people around me needs to be meaningful significant activity online and yeah i mean i would say that for the most part it if social media if you're disciplined about it it can be a positive i've connected with people i sometimes sell things on facebook marketplace and uh you know if somebody inherits a bunch of stuff i don't want it i'll I'll sell it for them for a commission and i have met the nicest people that have come to my house i've ended up like sending them home with plants because i'm a big gardener and i'll be like take these plants take them away and so i find that it's been social media has facilitated both Facebook and Twitter, I've met some really interesting people that I correspond with, but I just use the self-discipline. If somebody is nasty or inauthentic, I I don't know who they are, if they actually are a real person, why should I interact with them? And like you, everything is under my own name. So my public Facebook page, my Twitter page, my uh, my substack, my column, everything is under my name. I never send out any message that is not attached to my name. So if it would dishonor my name, it's not going out.
1: Yeah. It's something I do too, because my kids are all old enough. They don't even have to have a Twitter account. They can just Google my name and my Twitter feeds first thing pops up. So keeps us all fair. Uh, Krista Kafer always uh, love talking about this stuff because this stuff's important because you can talk about the politics and the policy stuff, but if you're not, you know, doing good stuff on your own line, none of that stuff matters because nobody's going to listen to you. Um, The dopamine hit, of talking to good people though. Cause I've, I've made some really important to me relationships just through the Twitter now over the last four years. And, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Chris Kafer. Thank you so much for the time today. We're going to definitely have you back. We're going to get you in the rotation. We need a, we need a Western correspondent. So that might be you <laughs> out there in the Rocky mountains, uh, until we see you on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can find you, where they can follow you. Keep up with your work until we get you back.
2: So Krista Kafer, uh, Denver post is one place you can get it. If, uh, if you want to, you're going to hit the paywall if you look for my stuff in there. If you don't want to pay it, you can also, I also retweet those or reprint those at my Substack, which is Anomalous Take, like a weird take. It's Anomalous, um, and you can check me out there on my Substack. Follow me on Twitter. You know, you at least get some cool pictures of spiders and my dog. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. You're somebody I've I've admired and en- I just enjoy. The things that you tweet out, I love your love of food, and I like learning more about West Virginia. So uh, the fact that you contacted me after just thinking you were cool, I heard an interview with you, um, your your story, um, how you got to where you are now, and I just found it really inspirational. And it, this is a good example of meeting somebody through an online presence that has that that that's nice.
1: Ah, uh, you're too kind. Um, I will admit though. I I'll confess it. If the timeline gets a little slow, I, I may or may not throw a dog pick on there just to make things pick up that, that that <laughs> may, I may not have full integrity when it comes to, there's enough of them running around here. That's for sure. In fact, in fact we got a we got a rescue. We're picking up Wednesday. So there's another one coming. God help us. But um, thank you so much for that. That's very kind. And that, but that's, that's what we try to do. So I appreciate it. And that's what we try to do with this show because we're the non yelling show. We talk to everybody. So definitely we'll have you back, my friend. Um, The piece is in the Denver Post. We will link to it. Read the whole thing for yourself, like we always say. And we'll have you back again soon. Chris Kafer, thank you so much for the time, man. Thank you. Yes, man. Thank you. Hi, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, been a minute since we had him. Let's go up to the Northeast, see what them folks up there have been up to. They've done some voting here lately, and just because everybody thinks it's solid blue, there's actually some really interesting political things going on up there. Great to welcome our friend back, Adam Bass. He's a reporter. He's with the North Star Reporter up in Attleboro. That's in Massachusetts, for those of you from Logan and elsewhere that aren't mass holes. How are you, my friend? Good to see you again.
0: Thank you for having me on once again, Andrew, and great to be part of the show once more.
1: See, this is the thing. Let's just start right there. I'm joking about it, but it is true. You know, the national narrative has kind of moved away from the Northeast for the most part, although, you know, they still talk about New York and things like this. People just kind of write off and go, oh, well, New England, it's solid blue. Why bother politically? We had the primaries there a couple of weeks ago, didn't get a whole lot of press. There's actually some interesting stuff going on in New England politics these days.
0: Yeah, there is. Uh, I will say there has been a lot of reporting on the New Hampshire uh, primary and the upcoming election since it is one of the big, and I say this in quotes, competitive races. Uh, for, the, for a while, uh, Maggie Hassan, who was the incumbent senator of New Hampshire, looked to be the most vulnerable senator uh, in the Democratic uh, incumbencies. But the problem is, is that former governor, or excuse me, incumbent governor, Chris Anunu, a Republican, decided, you know, I want to stay as Republican. I'm not going to listen to uh, minority Senate leader Mitch McConnell to run. I'm gonna stay here so now she's facing uh a retired uh member of the army that being don baldock for senate and she is looking to win the race right now anything can happen but you know new hampshire is going to be a very interesting place to look at because as you said it's not a dark blue state i would say it's more cobalt for those who are not familiar with color theory that's a very light blue uh bordering on to a more lavender side but uh, look art and political science two different things (laughs) and the thing is is that maggie Hassan really going to go up uh hard against mr baldock and really going to make this race all about where he stands on issues such as abortion and basically keeping the government outside of new hampshire specifically an abortion ban or uh intruding on rights etc etc
1: yeah in new hampshire for folks to you know, a little bit younger. That used to be a decently conservative northeastern state. Um, it started to flip. Kerry barely beat W in two thousand and four there. I think it was two points or less. Before mm-hmm. that, the elder Bush won it outright. This there was a lot of conservatives and and a healthy, very healthy, very competitive Republican party in the state of New Hampshire. That seems to have been gone now. This see a lot of people were looking at Sununu as kind of the last hope or maybe the next step of bringing back the party. With him not going to the national level, it feels like maybe that state's just going to go blue and that's going to be it for at least a couple of cycles, if not a generation. Does that feel like it there?
0: Sort of. See, the thing about New Hampshire and its conservatives are what I would like to call independence with common sense. So as I said, one of the big things about New Hampshire is that they like their privacy. They like to do what they like. But they don't like extremism on either the Republican side or the Democratic side. That's why you see someone like um, the current incumbent of the first New Hampshire district, Tom Poppett, sort of go against President Joe Biden's um, college uh, debt relief plan. Um, he says it's a bit too much, it doesn't really help those who are hard workers and union workers up in New Hampshire. Uh, and Custer, a little also a little more wary about that plan. She represents the second district. Both are Democrats. But the thing is, is that the Republicans that represented New Hampshire and were sort of the backbone are turning into what's called free staters. Now, these are the people who are very, very libertarian, would rather you know, have no government at all. There was an article in the New York Times that said that one free stater said, democracy is a form of communism, which is basically, They don't like it. They don't like having big government at all. But at the same time, New Hampshire voters want common sense government. Uh, Again, these are the voters that really did well uh, or live in areas like Manchester, Nashua, those suburban uh, wealthier towns uh, by the southeast part of New Hampshire. The MAGA types, Make American Great Again types, they don't really gel unless they're in very uh, low college educated t- uh, towns below the college educated line. And that's sort of the problem. They're running out of space to do that in New Hampshire. So while I don't think it's going to be dark, dark blue like Massachusetts or even Rhode Island, I do think it's going to be a cobalt blue, a state that prefers these common sense Democrats who want to keep people's rights, but also not to go full hog in doing full government in New Hampshire.
1: Talk about a neighboring state up there that we don't talk about politically a whole lot but they are darker blue than that uh rhode island they also did some voting you mentioned it though if you get down past the news and there wasn't a whole lot of news because who talks about rhode island unless you're going to rhode island right oh, well, there's some interesting things going on there and you highlighted one race in particular
0: that's correct so the big race in rhode island aside from the governor's race which was really close in the primary the big race that national pundits and reporters like to talk about is rhode island's second district now this is the western part of rhode island and all the way down to the bottom of the state you have for the democratic side seth magaziner on the republican side uh cranston mayor alan fung now people saw this as a very competitive race after jim Lavigen uh Lavigin decided to retire but the thing is is that i don't see a red win i see a red herring there rhode island's second district contains parts of providence westerly and of course cranston and the problem is that those places have voted relatively democratic for years and you know people were talking about this race when joe biden's uh, president joe biden's approval were, were not very strong uh, in the low, low 40s, not to this 45, 44 where he is now. And people were thinking maybe Alan Fung, who is this sort of uh, moderate Republican that New England is known for, will do well there. But the problem is that uh, Kevin McCarthy, minority, uh, spe- uh, minority leader of the House, has attached himself to this race. And the problem is that If you're going to run as a moderate Republican in Massachusetts, or excuse me, Rhode Island, you're going to need to buck the party hard. I'm going to give an example you're very familiar with. Uh, Your senator, Joe Manchin. Now, he is, you know, he's a West Virginian icon, but what he's known for is running as Joe Manchin first, a Democrat second. Same with Charlie Baker up here, our governor, a Republican, or excuse me, Charlie Baker first, a Republican second. When you're running as a House member, you're part of an ant colony, uh, in, in metaphorically, you're part of the party. So unless Alan Fung says, look, stay away from me, I do not want to be a part of this, I'm going to run on my record as mayor of Cranston, go away. But he's not, he hasn't really done that. He sort of said, all right, I'll be a part of the party because that's what House members do. And I don't think it's going to go well in places like Westerly, which is the southernmost part of Rhode Island, certainly not in parts of Providence. And maybe he'll do well in Cranston. But I don't know if it's going to be enough in an R plus two year, which is what people are projecting and a Republican plus two year, which is what people are projecting to be this midterms uh, makeup.
1: Yeah, it's a good point and a good idea. The thing about Joe Manchin, let's loop this back to New Hampshire for a minute. It wasn't that those folks really changed. The Republican Party moved away from them. It's not that Joe Biden changed. He's very much of one of the old blue dog Democrats, he used to call it. The Democratic Party changed, and the people in West Virginia, a lot of those people would still be blue dogs, but the cultural stuff went too fast, or pick whatever you want, and the party moved away from them. So it went from blue to red. New Hampshire went red to blue, or is going that way. It's the same thing with some of these individual House races, and politics is still local, and you mentioned it. Some of this isn't really the population changing that much. It's just they're having to adjust with the candidates. They're being presented in front of them and thus they make adjustments. And then that's why we talk about these things. You know, the, these things are not set in stone. They may be completely different the next cycle because you put a different candidate in front of them.
0: Right. Candidate quality still matters. And if Democrats do keep the Senate, that will be the main, I think the main uh, moral, the Aesop fable of the midterms, uh, candidate quality still matters. And In house races, not so much because again, those are those are like an ant colony; they work together. But in the Senate, it's like a bunch of grasshoppers. To again, to use the Aesop fable metaphor, Um, they're all individuals. They all want to show who they are, and that makes it a little easier for them to, I guess, run against the grain. But I will I will challenge you on the idea that people haven't changed. That's not entirely true. Uh, More union workers, and again, people. That do not have a college education. They used to vote Democrats. Now they're voting Republican, but that's more of the realignment. But in some ways, the core values of the state has not changed in terms of New Hampshire or Rhode Island.
1: Yeah, Adam Bass joining us. Fair enough point. We'll hash that out some other time, though, because I want to ask you about your home state, Massachusetts. Uh, some interesting stuff going on up there politically. Again, here's a deep blue state, probably maybe the bluest of blue states, especially, you know, the Boston area, this sort of thing. Why should the greater country pay attention to things like Massachusetts? Uh, not just because, you know, the governor is going to run for president because he's got nothing better to do coming up, no, not. but in, you really <laughs> think he's not going to run.
0: No, he's not. He's done. Um, Charlie Baker has no path to run for president. He showed. No I didn't intent. say he's
1: going to win. I'm just saying there's a lot of people that want him to run. I could name you names of some players that are really pushing him to run. You still think he's not going to do it?
0: No, he's done. There's been reporting that you know he he was convinced by his wife um, to say, "Look, we're done. We don't want to be harassed by these right wingers in Massachusetts anymore because they've been protesting outside of our house in Swampscott, and." you know Charlie Baker just wants to move on with his life um if you want a republican from a blue state to run for governor your best chance is Larry Hogan who's really itching uh Larry Hogan's from Maryland by the way he's yeah. really itching to run even though again no real path for him
1: no no he'll get a 3 but i'll I'll warn you let me give you some journalistic advice real quick Gail Manchin was telling everybody that would listen two days prior to Joe saying he was staying in the Senate. You want to bring up Joe Manchin? Gail was telling everybody they were moving back to Charleston, and then he dropped that on Monday morning. So be careful riding with that one, buddy. You may be right. I may be wrong. We'll see how good. No, either way, though, uh, they don't have a path. But putting that aside, Massachusetts always been a little weird. Every now and then, it seems like every third or fourth cycle, something surprises us out of Massachusetts. Um, doesn't look like that's going to be the case this cycle, though. Although within the blue-on-blue blue stuff, you said there was a little bit of intrigue going on here.
0: Yes, there is. So to put it bluntly, what's going on in Massachusetts is that while the core va- again while the core values of the state aren't changing, the the makeup and demographics of the state Senate, the state House, and the executive branch are going to change drastically. On the Democratic side, look who we have. Maura Healey, Attorney General, who's probably gonna be the first uh, lesbian elected as governor uh, in, in the country. You have her running mate, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll. You have the Attorney General, uh, Andrea Campbell, former Boston City Councilor, probably going to be Massachusetts' first black female Attorney General, and State Auditor Candidate, uh, State Senator for Methuen, Diane DeZaglio. Now, what do those four have in common? They're women. Massachusetts used to be the old boys club, but now we're starting to put the she in political machine. And in that regard, that's kind of big. You know, Massachusetts used to be a homogenous of Irish white Democrat, Irish white male Democrats, um, and maybe some Italians here and there. But now we have an executive branch that's go that's probably going to beat the Republican uh, lineup with Jeff Deal and Leah Al Alan, Alan Cole, excuse me. Uh, and that way, that's going to be kind of big to see f- four out of the five um, executive branch members be female. In the House, uh, it's becoming more open to candidate, or excuse me, uh, politicians of color. You know, when Diana DiSoglio won her primary uh, against um, uh, Chris Dempsey. The person who succeeded her was a city councilor from Lorne who's Hispanic, and he's going to be the first person of color to represent that seat. So that's huge. And also, there's a sheriff race going on where a candidate, uh, Paul Harrow from Attleboro, is going up against 25-year incumbent Todd uh, Tom Hodgson. And that could be a close race, too. I'm going to keep an eye on that one. because. A, people are a little uh, weary of Hodgson's, especially since all the manga stuff is going on down there. And B, this is the first time a candidate from northern Bristol County is going up against Hodgson's. It's always been someone from Fall River and New Bedford, the two uh, southern cities of Massachusetts. So you know, keep an eye here. Even though on a macro level, it doesn't change much, on a micro level, everything matters here. There is going to be change in what things look like. Not how things are done. Maybe that's going to take a little while, but certainly what our representatives look like. And if we're going to have a uh, a system where nothing changed, then at least let's have our uh, representatives look uh, like they represent us.
1: Yeah. And there was a there was a very real thing for a long time, especially in Boston, just because you're deep blue and very progressive doesn't mean the diversity was keeping up with the rhetoric. And it looks like that's finally starting to change.
0: It'll be slow though. Uh, nothing, nothing is gonna, you know. The thing is, is that change takes time, and that's I think one of the big problems with, you know, people's thinking, especially in a day and age where you know information comes at the click of a button at this moment. Just because information is traveling quick doesn't mean change will, but it will come. It will definitely come.
1: Yeah, Adam Bass, our friend, local reporter, always love to have good local perspective on things. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, especially if they for some reason want to follow from Massachusetts or you just got to get somebody in there to balance it out. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on again, my friend.
0: Sure. You can follow me at Adam Bass of Mass on Twitter.com. You can also follow me uh, at the North Star Reporter. So at N Star Reporter. And also follow me, my friends, Jesse Hahn, Logan Rabe, and Jack Leary on our podcast, The Cod Cabin, at The Cod Cabin. We talk about Massachusetts politics, have guests on, and, you know, we have a good time there. We love our Commonwealth. It's not a state. It's a Commonwealth. But, you know, and we talk about all the time there. So, yeah, once again, Andrew, thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah. Check out the podcast. Follow him. He's got a cool little local reporting thing about the language inside of how his town is set up, how it's going to mess up elections. That's the kind of local reporting you really need to pay attention to. And just because it's in your that small town. You might want to look at your cities and small towns, because I bet you you might have the same problem. Good job there, buddy. We'll talk soon. Adam Bass, see you soon, buddy. Take care. Thank you. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time.